All right, we're live. Uh, we got Jeff Zimmerman dialing in from deep in the heart of Brooklyn. Um, deep. We're doing this over Riverside. This man has a small child to take care of that has to go to bed. At, that has to go to bed at eight o'clock. So we figured, might as well just do it. Uh, do it late night after the kid goes to sleep. Jeff, how you doing? I'm doing great, man. He said "daddy" for the first time tonight. No, get the fuck out. Yeah, it's pretty great. And he like he said it at me, like like daddy. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. That's great, man. That's is that his first word, or it's like one of a few? Yeah, I mean, he's got it's it's one of his. He has a very he's a short list of sort of words and a very short list of intentional words. So. Okay. Like he could say, uh oh, like when he he'll throw he took a piece of watermelon and spiked it like a football and then looked over his chair and said, Uh oh. <laughs> it's like you the know? baby version of did I do that? Yeah, yeah. So he has uh oh for when he drops things or throws them on the floor. And then but yeah, this is a this is a this is up there. It's pretty great. Well, that's awesome, man. Congratulations. I my Thank only you. exposure to to small children right now is through my friends but i'm like just amazed at like the ways that they can express themselves without even really saying words um one of my best friends like his daughter she was two two and a half at the time and like their neighbor had moved away uh-huh. and he used to do something with his mouth like he you know like r- like with his finger with the lips like, blah, 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 uh-huh. like that kind of oh, thing yeah. uh-huh. and she she wanted to know where he was, but she didn't know how to ask. So she would just point at the house and like go like that, like mm. like Aww. basically, it's in her head to like where did he go, but she doesn't know how to like put the words together. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he does this. It's kind of like having a little Chewbacca or um, Baby Yoda or something in the house, where it's like I don't know what he's saying, but I know what he's talking about. Yeah, so you can communicate. It's just like you're doing it on this like intuitive level based on the sound and the frequency of grunts, you know? Yeah, but I'm sure it like comes over time. It's like you kind of pick up on their language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, before we get started, I've got to talk. Jeff and I have what I've learned is a double Virginia connection. Uh, we were talking last week. So I grew up in Ashburn, and then my first two years of college, I went to school at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, where Jeff's mm-hmm. mother is from. Um, right. So that was kind of like a fun little little connection there. How how did you end up in Ashburn, though? That's like kind of a, a odd place for an adult oh, to I end worked, up. I worked at AOL. Oh, shit. There you go. Yeah, so I like, I mean, I lived, I actually lived in Mount Pleasant in D.C., but I commuted to Ashburn every every day for work. I would try to ride, towards the end there, I was trying to ride my bike. So it was like, because you can hit the, the trail and you can, you know, you cross the bridge in Georgetown and you hit that, that trail and it goes all the way to West Virginia. So it was about two hours to get there, but hell of a ride. How a often were you ride. doing that? I would like ride my bike to work on a Monday, catch a ride home with somebody and then ride my bike home from work on Tuesday. Okay. You know, so I would, and then maybe once every week or every couple weeks, I do it both ways, but Jesus, mostly the first time I rode my bike to and from work, I came home, I, you know, so I got home at like seven, eight o'clock and I was so hungry and so tired. I could have, I could have put my finger into a cheesecake and reduced it to ash. Just like, <laughs> like, 
you know, so, but you know, you're, you're, it's amazing how your body adjusts. So, so, uh, you know, and also I was, you know, significant, I was in, I was in my late twenties at the time. So it was just a lot easier. Yeah. What year were you, were you doing that? Like what, around what time? Um, Oh, late Oh five to late Oh six. Okay. So I moved there in 98 and then, uh-huh. uh, my parents were there until 2014 when they retired and moved to upstate New York. So oh, okay. we were, we were crossing paths without even really knowing it. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's like, it's not like it's, it's such a dull area. You know, the most exciting thing is like watching the planes come over from Dulles. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I guess for an adult, it has to be like kind of or for someone like out of college, it has to be kind of boring just but like when you're like a, a teenager, like you don't you kind of don't know any better. Like maybe mm-hmm. you can kind of like anytime we could like sneak into D.C. to go to a show at the 930 Club. That was like the uh, the highlight of, okay. of our like suburban existence back then. Yeah, 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 totally. What's so funny about like so many comedians that I know is like these are people who I've known for years and have had like long conversations with. But like I'm, one thing I'm finding with this podcast when I talk to him is like I don't really know their like origin story for lack mm-hmm. of a better term. Um, and it's, it's very interesting to find out like all the different ways that people got into it or got started. Like talking to Gus Tate last week and he, you know, had started in China, which I was completely not aware of. Um, so, I mean, like going from being a guy that's living and working in Ashburn in like the mid two thousands, like mm-hmm. when does stand up start? When does storytelling kick in? Like what's, oh. what's like the genesis of all that for you? Oh yeah. Well, I, let's see, I got laid off at AOL in the end of 2006 and I like had always been like the guy who at, you know, bars after college and in college people were like oh jeff you got to tell that story and i'm like yeah but it happened to you and they're like yeah but you tell it you know like i was like <laughs> the guy and um you know i had a college radio show and stuff and then i had a friend um who told me somewhere around us had been telling me like listen maybe don't just be that guy at the black cat like try moving to and the black cat is like a great like music venue and bar that i used to go to all the time and i actually recorded oh yeah my first i've album been there a handful there. of times yeah i recorded my first album there so um so she was like there's this thing called the moth that you can come do and uh, and for those of you that don't know what it is it's like a it's a non-profit storytelling organization it has a really popular podcast and radio show on npr and you they have these events called story slams and they're like once a week in new york and they're they're all over the place across the u.s they're like the starbucks of storytelling now but like you'd show up (laughs) and you you put you put your name in a hat and they have a theme like making peace or into the wild and they draw 10 names out and it's like not all at once but like you draw a name out you have five minutes to tell a story on that theme and if you go you get a grace minute when they blow a little whistle if you go over, they start docking points. And by points, I mean they rank it like figure skating. Like people hold up a card that says 9.3 or 7.1. And then they call the next person. And so I was going, and I mean like, so anyway, my friend told me about that. I moved to New York City. And I kind of put it off, you know, and then I like had just some some bullshitty like temp jobs. And then... I was like, I didn't move to New York city just to go to happy hour with people that used to work at Condé Nast, you know, like I, 
I'm I'm here for something. I didn't know what. And I went to this moth event. It was called a Grand Slam where like the last 10 Story Slam winners like face off. And it was like pulling a sword out of a fucking stone. I was like, this is what I'm doing. I am, dude, this is what I'm all about. This and this only for the foreseeable future. And I was just obsessed. And, you know, it used to be that like you'd go to these things and this is before they started selling tickets online to um, their members. It used to be the moth was much more like if you had more time than money, you could go wait to get into the venue. and You'd have to get there two hours early because it always sold out. And then I met all these people in line and, you know, you get to you get your line buddies and you get to talk and not unlike your buddies at open mics or whatever. And uh, and I mean, yeah, the, the moth is like the most glammed up open mic in the world, right? Because it's what it is. Any idiot can come in off the street and do it. But it does require a bit of skill to do well at it consistently. And um, you get some crazy people and it's just like they push a shopping cart full of cats on stage and you're just like, okay, here we, here we go. You know, but I started to meet, you know, I wanted to get better. I wanted to get better and better. And I had some really early success where like I'd been doing it about a year or yeah, about a year when I got onto this American life and I got onto this American life by doing a story at a grand slam that went really well. And a buddy of mine, was in the audience who worked there and in their story meeting, like that week he mentioned the story and, and I happened to pitch this American life that day and he put a word in for me. And I, I knew within three hours that they liked the story and wanted it. And by next week I was sitting down with Ira glass to record a bumper at the end. Holy it was, cow. Yeah. It was on the air within two months. And like, I, I, it ruined me. It really, really <laughs> fucked me up. Yeah, no, because I was like, I was like, yep. I was like, I was like, yep. this, I'm the kind of person for whom shit like this happens. This is what I do. This is how it works. No, listen, I don't know how many people are listening to this right now, but I, I don't care if it's just your aunt, Pete. But you, like, you, everybody should know that it's like, I getting on the show the way I did is like threading a needle by throwing string at it from across a room. It just, it ruined, me. and then. And then I have, I knew Michael Che from just bar shows. Like he had done, I had a variety show called And I Am Not Lying that was like burlesque storytelling stand-up sideshow. Yeah, I, I've, I, I did that a couple times, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I so I had it at Union Hall before we came to UCB East, which I think is where you did it. Mm-hmm. But, um, and Michael Che was like a guy I knew just from like, I used to live down the street from the Knitting Factory when Hannibal Burris was running that show. It was super hot. And Michael Che was a guy who lived in Jersey City and shared an air mattress with his ex-girlfriend, but couldn't move, afford to move out, you know? And um, Mike Lawrence was, you know what I mean? It's like that kind of N- Nimesh Patel. All those guys were like just kind of, you know, sh- funny guys trying to figure it out. And um, I was like, I, I used to go to that show every Sunday because I was like, I could watch TV right now or i could go right down the street and watch the people that i would watch on tv right because hannibal was having you know snl people at the time would drop in and then so michael che was like and and like i do not want to overstate this relationship uh although his number is in my phone i have no business texting him for any reason if he saw me you know what i mean like i got 
I've got a lot of famous comedians numbers in my phone for opening for them in DC. Like John Mulaney's number is in my phone. And like, if I texted him and be like, who the hell is this? What are you talking about? It's like, Oh no. Remember 14 years ago where I opened for you at the Arlington draft house. So I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's like, yeah, it would be really fucked up if I used it, but like, you know, uh, you know, if he saw me out, he might say what's up, you know, but, um, he posted on Facebook. He was doing his. He was doing a breakout series at Caroline's on Broadway, which you know, again to the uneducated listener here is like that was seen as a feather in your cap as a comic. Like I'm getting somewhere. I'm being given the chance to do a full hour at Caroline's on Broadway, which is a great comedy club, or at least people think it was. And um, and so he was like, I need somebody to host for this. He says this on Facebook, and I was like, dude, if you're you're asking on Facebook, I'll do it. And I was thinking, geez, what could go wrong? Um, Ira Glass has just approved my humorous witticisms for NPR. Surely I'm equipped to handle an audience full of drunk people that don't even necessarily speak English. And um, I bombed so bad. I ate my balls for breakfast, lunch, and dinner on that show. And I was wearing a three-piece suit. And I sweat, oh, no. I sweat through the undershirt, the shirt, the vest, the tie, the jacket. There was steam on the back of my glasses. You know, I thought I saw people in that crowd not get laid because of me. It was awful. <laughs> it was the worst. And, and this, he got, the pool of sweat was just growing like the worst. Yeah, that yeah, it got. yeah. I think the sweat rings uh, overlapped at my back, you know, and it was awful awful and he like was gracious enough about it it was fairly obvious that i bombed and i was just like emotionally spiraling after and i was like well what about guys like richard Pryor?" or 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 he said look what you did wasn't bad it just wasn't right for the room you know like you did a story and nobody has the time to figure out a story you gotta go especially during out. a host set i feel like Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I did. It's, it was really a cascading series of fuck ups entirely initiated by me. It's, but um, uh, but I was like, I'm going to feel like any normal person would have been like, right. Uh, sure did learn my lesson, you know, and I was like, but no, there's this moment in every comedian's life where like you choose to get back on the horse that kicked you. And I was like, I will figure this out. I'm going to figure this out. And so I started going to stand up open mics. And, you know, I don't know if – do you remember Lucas Kaiser? Did you ever go to that mic at the Brit Pack? The Brit Pack? I know the name, but I don't know if I remember the mic specifically. So this guy, Lucas Kaiser, he doesn't live here anymore. He's in L.A. now. But he had a um, this mic and at like this Russian nesting doll of illegal businesses. Like it was an illegally run venue inside an illegally run youth hostel inside a uh, like illegally run loft apartment. And you got, they just paid off the Chinese mafia every six months. And, um, cause it was owned by the building was owned by the Chinese mafia. And, um, the, there were these, it's funny that a British woman owned the, the hostel and this beauty salon upstairs, like it was just the classic French British tension. And then of course they had comedy shows in there that made a bunch of noise. And the, the people at the beauty salon would complain all the time. And so every six months, Lucas would just pass a jar and an envelope and people would donate cash and he'd give it to like whatever member of the the triad came by 
And they'd just be like, okay, we just will not answer these calls for another six months. And um, you got 10 minutes. It was four days a week and you got 10 minutes. Wow, that's good. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's just so many things where you, you – know, I was talking to a buddy of mine this weekend. We did a show on the road together and it's like you don't know it's the glory days when you're doing it. But like to get 10 minutes, four days a week – to do what the fuck ever you want. So I just went, I wanted to be a better storyteller. And I, I knew that it was about reps, you know, anything on stage is about reps. And I really, really like being funny. I want, that's really what I wanted to do. And I was like, huh, I want to take a story. I want to have a story that could work at Caroline's. So let me go figure out how to tell the story with jokes or find jokes and use them in a story. And so I just did that. And then I just started doing other mics and other shows. And, you know, you start doing, you know, Creek in the Cave in 2012. Um, there were these times where, like, I have a corporate job. I'm the director of digital communications for Time Warner Cable. I ran their blog and their Twitter feed. Um, it's like after midnight on a Wednesday, and I'm in the basement of the Creek in the Cave. And there's no oxygen left. It's all stale farts and vape smoke. And I'm just like, why am I doing yeah, this? Yeah, man, dude, that I, I have like a Proustian memory. It just like comes back to me, you know. Like it's, it's. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can visualize that room and the smell. It's all there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it Proustian or Pavlovian? I always thought it was Pavlovian. Is it Marcel uh, Proust Pavlovian or is it? Pavlovian is like an action that you take. It's like a dog. Proust salivating. is the guy where he was dipping the cookies in the tea, and it was like a, it was like a memory that he had. Okay, I've, well, from I've his childhood. Something. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've learned something today. Um, so I could also be totally wrong. Who knows? Yeah. Well, anyway, um, so like, that's just, I was just doing that. And then my variety show was like, I started that show. My friends, Brad and Cindy, I met from, um, the moth and from storytelling. They're also burlesque. They also have a burlesque career and uh, they now have an incredible show called Hotsy Totsy at the slipper room. And the slipper room is like the comedy seller of burlesque. Like it's been there since the forties, any period piece like Miss Maisel, Mad Men, whatever, if they're at a strip club, it's filmed at the stripper, uh, at the slipper room and, um, little Freudian slip there. So anyway, they, I was like, let me combine <laughs> burlesque with storytelling, with stand up, with sideshow. Cause I don't know if I'm funny or not while I'm figuring this out. I, my, I might flop around, you know, but if I can associate myself with better comics with the idea that it may be an experimental storytelling thing. And also it's like, if I'm not good, there's going to be a naked lady on stage. Just stick around. You know what I mean? Like makes up for a lot. Yeah. 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 It's like, this guy sucks, but there's going to be tits and it's only five bucks. So what I'm hearing though, through this, 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 this like kind of journey. So it's like, I'm, I'm still really interested in like the, the decision to pack up and leave DC. Like you get laid off from time Warner and then you go from DC to New York. Like just because, from AOL, laid off from AOL. AOL, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, you got laid yeah, off from AOL. Okay. All, the, all the mergers and stuff, yeah, it's all confusing. Yeah. So you get laid off from yeah. AOL, then you're like, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to, and then you're there and you're like, I got to I gotta start storytelling. You start storytelling. You want it to be funny. Stand up grows out of that. And then it kind of mm-hmm. becomes this like whole other thing where you're merging with other people. Is that like kind of mm-hmm. the, yeah, 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 the, yeah, the timeline yeah. there? Yeah. And I mean, look, I, I could have stayed in DC, but I was like, I just don't want to have a, like a fucking just day job and be doing like like dc at that time and it's just worse it's just gotten worse now as dc has gotten more corporate the same way new york has but like 
I was like, DC, if there's a, yeah, there's a, like all my friends in DC were part of the like discord records slash like post punk, like trickled down out of Fugazi rock and roll scene, you know? And I moved mm-hmm. there thinking that was still going on, you know, like, Hey, it's the city that produced bad brains, minor threat, you know, Fugazi, uh, nation of Ulysses, you know, the makeup, whatever. And I was like, yeah, let me go be a part of that. And it just wasn't fucking happening. And like most of what was going on in DC was like what I like to call um, interesting lawyers where like you're a lawyer and then you might belly dance or do something cool at night or on the weekend. But I am not a nights and weekends motherfucker, man. I'm sorry. I'm, pardon my language. Is it okay to just let it loose here? I'm a, I'm oh, you a, can curse all you want. Yeah. Who gives yeah, a shit? yeah. Yeah. I'm an all day every day, you know? And, and which means I have trouble setting boundaries and I never feel like I'm done working, but I was just like, I'm not doing this just to be a cool lawyer or like whatever. Not that I want to be, you see what I'm saying? Like I was like, I want want... the artistry to be central to what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be doing it, doing it. And like, I don't want to be doing it despite. And so, and then also I had a girlfriend who moved up here, but like, I mean, I knew that relationship was not going to last um just you know there was like a a, an, a significant enough age difference that you know it was like she finished school and i was 10 years older and it was like she moved up here but i was like okay it's not a relationship to move for but at least there's something i got something going i at least got a lady to spend time with while i figure myself out and my friend Jeannie right. uh, was a chef and she worked on yachts in the French Caribbean uh, over the summer. So she rented her room out to me in Williamsburg. And I was, you know, yeah. Is this, is this filling, a... in the, filling in the gaps? Oh yeah, no, definitely. But yeah. like, yeah, I'm just so, like the central thing for you though, when you moved here was storytelling and then it kind of became this desire to do stand up to make the, to punch the stories up and, and make them funnier. Well, well, I had been a part. There was this blog scene in DC, and it's so it's so interesting to explain this to you because you know we do have we have enough of an age difference that it would have been relevant at the time I was doing this. You know, not not so much now, but like, you know what I'm saying? But yeah, yeah. So blogs were like this niche, like cult thing in 2004, five, six. You know, and mm-hmm. I had a blog on Blogspot, and it was like back then people were like actually writing to write right not to repurpose content or game seo but like let me write these fun cool stories and so there was this blog scene in dc and like everybody in the dc area that had a blog could all fit into one bar and go go to happy hour once a month and my blog was about like trying to write funny stories and weird shit that i saw and whatever and you know i met other people and it was a little bit like proto social media in that like some people were more using it uh, to be the chick that ran the happy hours was like this former sorority girl that missed it a little too much you know and so her thing was like like a way to be a social socialite mean girl there was a Wait, guy what who, was what was the name of that blog i think it was Catherine on Oh, I'm like I'm having like flashbacks to something like in around that time or like right after I graduated college in 2008 yeah. and kind of like these these things like buried way deep in here. But I could be I could be connecting with the wrong thing. But yeah, well, continue. there's one guy. There was this one guy who like this was also around the time that the um, 
the book The Game by Neil Strauss yeah. came out <laughs> at that time. And there were a bunch of these like low rent Neil Strauss lot knockoffs trying to have blogs about doing pickup stuff. And one of them is now classified like the Southern Poverty Law Center has classified him as like a hate person. Uh, his name's Roosh. And it's, he just had these like wildly misogynistic blogs. Um, and it was weird to see him out. because this really skinny guy. He's really hairy. He looked like a fucking ferret. And like all the hot chicks in the scene were sleeping with him. And I was like, I can't believe he's pulling these bras, you know? And um, yeah, confidence goes a long way, even if it's unearned. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, this is like when, when negging first came out, you know? But mm -hmm. so I was kind of like, I moved here and I kept my blog going. I moved to New York, kept my blog going. I thought I was going to be a blog guy. And then af shortly after I moved here, I had a couple of big pops in traffic. So I was regularly getting picked up by like Gawker, Gothamist. Um, Boing Boing used to be much bigger. Um, you know, but I was just regularly getting these pulses of traffic. And I drew i saw this guy with the most messed up haircut i've ever seen in williamsburg it was like a receding hairline that's saying something dude it was a receding hairline up to like spiky flak top and then mullet in the back and then wolverine sideburns and yeah just like math teacher um street fighter 2 kentucky waterfall and and with wolverine <laughs> pinchers and I just wrote about it and drew a picture of it on the whiteboard at my work and Gawker picked it up and it went really, really nuts. And for a couple days I was like, wow, everybody thinks my writing is funny. Look, I'm a great writer. And then I realized that it was like less to do with that and more to do with like Gawker posted like this bounty of people who could, the first person to take a selfie with the guy would win some money, you know, a couple hundred bucks or something like that. And people were just disrupting this poor guy's life, like walking up to him from off the street when he was on dates, harassing him, bothering him. And I was just like, oh, my God, I still feel so bad about that. Like, I just thought it was a funny Dude, little it's, essay. Uh, well, that like kind of. You know. Sorry. That perpetuates, I think, even now where it's like generating content is comes at the expense of people's lives. And like, it, it's just it's it, it's um, really kind of people forget the human element that that feeds into all this stuff. Yeah. Listen, there's a there's a I don't know if this look, if this is accidentally a racist thing to say, I don't know if it buckle up. But like it felt like it felt like you in order to get attention, you had to take a scalp. And I just like don't want to push somebody down in order to elevate myself, mm -hmm. you know. And and I, that was the first time I was like, "Whoa, there's a real power here," and I don't necessarily like it, you know. And it took a while for that lesson mm -hmm. to percolate in. There was other stuff, but I just kind of got to where I was like, you know. So by the time the storytelling came along, like blogging was wearing a little thin. I still did it for a couple of years, but it wasn't enough. You know, and so it went from like writing little stories on the computer to telling them on the stage to like refining the jokes to like whatever it is you think about me and my career now, you know. So, yeah, so yeah. you just kind of found found a new outlet and turned it like from on the keyboard to a live performance. Yeah, 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 totally. 
And then, so as you're kind of like building this, like with the storytelling and the stand-up, do you feel like they're kind of competing with each other in a way? Like, how did you like balance them with like trying to get on storytelling stuff versus trying to build a stand-up career? Like, how did those things work together and operate in conflict against each other? Um, well, that's a really good question. I do want to say, though, that I was still working a like corporate executive job while managing that other stuff, too. So that was mm-hmm. pretty, that was, that was, it was a lot. I had a, I was, you know, for a while I was engaged and then married somebody that, you know, that marriage did not last, but, um, I was, it was just like, I always felt like I had to be somewhere else. And listen at my job, like, because I was doing like a lot of reactive, like crisis PR or whatever, when it was slow, I just send emails to ask to be on shows or watch clips or Right. It was a lot of like sitting around the firehouse playing pool, waiting for the alarm to ring, you know? Yeah. So as long it was like, it's kind of understood, like as long as it doesn't look like you're fucking around, just like be in the office, but we're not going to ask a lot of questions, you know, mm-hmm. just be when we need you be there. You're sort of being paid to be available. And, uh, right. You know, and, but then, but then there was times where like, I, okay, I would go to burlesque shows. Cause I'd like, well, I mean, I would like became friends with the people that did burlesque and I'm also like always scouting talent to be in my variety show. And then like, I would have done like two stand up mics, gone to a burlesque show, gone home, put the same suit back on, you know, and I'm like in getting ready to go to a meeting and I've got glitter behind my ear because like, you know, I hugged a girl that was had a lot of glitter on the night before. And it was just like, Oh man, I'm just exhausted. And, um, that's a lot of like whiplash too, in terms of like, um professionalism or like environment because if you're in like a very like tight-knit suit wearing pr environment Mm -hmm. then you careen over to comedy open mic and burlesque show that's like you kind of embody different characters with each place that you're at almost yeah yeah yeah. i guess so i mean the the way i've always felt about it though is the way you do anything is the way you do everything i'm just me and i mean you you are you have known me for a long time i don't know if you knew me in like the suit days but many people have de- like people frequently describe me as physically imposing because I'm about your height and mm-hmm. you know people people if I stand next to the door at a bar half the time people just hand me their ID you know and so showing up I'm ten years older than everybody else at comedy stuff and showing up in a suit it was like really felt like where am I gonna sit how do I fit in I never really had that feeling and now I'm just like fuck it you know but. So like there was that then literally my first day on stage tell the first time I ever got on stage to tell a story was my first day at Time Warner Cable. So like I went to the work to sat there. It was so surreal. I didn't even know I was an executive for a week, you know, but I'm like sitting there. <laughs> I didn't even know. I, I knew so little about corporate structure and like, so my title was director of digital communications. And like a week later, my boss was like, yeah, we should get you on a, um, a they call, it's called a truck roll. And it's when somebody gets in the truck with a cable guy and you go around town with them all day and go with them on service calls just to see what it's like, you know, mm-hmm. and get a feel for what it's really like on the ground and not enough executives did them. But he was like, yeah, we have all our executives do them. And I was like, oh, and you're having me do one too. And he looked at me and he was like, you're you're an executive. I was like, Oh, Oh yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> so, um, what, you know. what buildings you work in? Did you, you didn't work in the Turner towers on Columbus circle. Did you? Yes, I did. Yeah. Dude, I worked there from 2012 to 2015 at Turner broadcasting. Get out of here. 
We've literally been like circling each other for the last 20 years, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there till, to, you know, 2008 to 2013. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, um, that's nuts. Yeah, um, yeah. There's that rock in, right in the Central Park. I used to go nap on it during lunch. But, uh, yeah, that, uh, yeah. With, with, a, with a suit on, like just yeah, laying yeah. down on the rock? Yeah, I'd just pull the jacket up, make a little pillow. Um, yeah, why not? Yeah. Um, really freaks people out when a guy in a suit does some wino stuff you know <laughs> it's like you're either catching someone like it's like oh man things are going real downhill for this guy a yeah, week from yeah, now, yeah. he's so not gonna have that suit it's gonna yeah, be a yeah. tattered hoodie yeah exactly we're not he this might be the last suit he ever puts on you know but exactly. anyway so when i was so i was just like and i'm still kind of like any stage time is stage time you know and people would tell me no, 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 you're more of a storyteller. We don't want you on the stand-up show. And it would drive me fucking nuts because it's like, they'd be like, no, no, well, you're really more of a storyteller. The, you know, the, the, the woman that ran the creek in the cave would be like, well, you're really more of a storyteller. You know, it's more of a storytelling thing, blah, blah, blah. You know, not really a stand-up per se. And then, you know, 15 minutes later, it would be like, did you see Bill Burr's latest special? He's such a great storyteller we got to get Mike for Bigley at a headline in here. And I was like, fuck you. Like that's one, you know what I mean? And that it used to drive me nuts, but that artifice was more in the heads of other people. And then I just was like, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing because stage time is stage time. And it's all cross training. And, you know, one thing, fits another and like i would hear this just you hear this like mind-bendingly conflicting shit like oh no 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 you're more you know you got to be a solid joke writer and then all the joke writers like man i wish i could tell a story i just don't know how to tell a story so it's like you see all the joke people eventually want to learn how to tell a story and storytelling people there's like a very small crossover in new york there's probably like less than 20 people who kind of are interested in doing both you know and um, mm-hmm. it's like, in some ways, performatively, storytelling is like the t-ball of stand-up because the um, the it's so patient and forgiving and gentle. Just as long as you did your thing, man, good for you. And yeah, there's not that pressure to like hit a punch every fifteen to twenty seconds. Right. And the thing is, that's really good because it's. I mean, I like to tell people, I tell people in classes that I'm teaching, like you need metaphorically, you need a strict dad and a nurturing mom, so you need someone to let you or like a a world that's going to let you try whatever embrace you welcome you back praise you for what maybe a little too much for what you need to be praised for and that keeps you going and then you also need somebody to make you you know run laps and be like tighten up and that's standing Mm -hmm. you know definitely so i know it's going to take a minute to go through i want to talk about just the last, however much you want to share, the last few years of your life and, and the show that you're working on oh, yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And it kind of ties into, you know, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on here, in addition to like combining both comedy and storytelling and like fatherhood and all that yeah. and, and putting it all together. So, uh, yeah, if you want to just tell everyone like what the show is that you're working on right now, the subject matter, mm-hmm. um, how it all kind of kind of came together and like what it what it means to you at the moment. Yeah, I mean, so during the lockdown in 2020, um, my dad was diagnosed with ALS. And for those of you that don't know it, it's a horribly, 
it's the cruelest disease. It's a neurodegenerative disorder, and it causes you to gradually become increasingly more paralyzed. And you, you know, as it progresses, you just get more and more locked into your body. And we knew as early as December of 2019, like I was working at a wood shop with my dad and he asked me to get like this little toolbox down off a high shelf. And I was like, I'll do it. But like, I'm concerned that you can't. And he was like, yeah, it's notice I can't really lift more than five pounds over my head anymore. And I was like, well, let's get that checked out. You know, like for years I had, been after him because he was becoming weaker and i just thought it was like a hormone thing like a low testosterone thing or like an older man thing you know he had been treated for prostate cancer and i thought that there was something that you know was going on and with you know the after effects of that treatment and no he was just getting great so it like als can take a long time so it was probably in him for years before we knew what it was because you could always attribute it to something else but anyway he was diagnosed with als and so during the beginning of the lockdown, we knew something was wrong and it was like getting worse and we couldn't go be together. You know, we couldn't go to Norfolk, Virginia, which is where I'm from and see him. And it got, it, it was just getting scary. And I was like begging my dad, like, please look, you know, let us come down. And he was like, I'm so scared you're going to bring in COVID yada, yada. And I, I have to say as an aside that like everybody that refused to wear a mask or shat on vaccines or publicly was like, well, who knows what the real truth is? I'm just asking the question. Like I have a very personal fuck you for all those people because it took time away from me spending time with my father before the disease changed him into a person nobody recognized. And it made it so that we couldn't get attendants to come care for him and help him and give this old paralyzed man a bath at a time when he needed it. And every single one of you assholes that talked shit on vaccines or wouldn't wear a mask or had your little funny jokes about whatever, you guys, you guys helped keep me from my father and I resent all of you for it. And that's I, I hope that you if you're capable of shame i hope you feel more of it as a result of hearing this but um so anyway finally june comes we make it down to norfolk and he couldn't lift a drinking glass anymore and by christmas we had to feed him by hand and my wife and i were also doing ivf at this time uh, I had testicular cancer in 2009, so I'm, like, shooting myself up with drugs to make the, the old sperm factory cut on. And um, So you're you're involved in the IVF process, too, normally. Oh, yeah, it's, it's yeah, just... yeah. I'm not – it's not just – and I'm out, you know. Like, I'm mm – -hmm. I am in it. It was me. It was me. I was, like, the issue because – Okay. Yeah, I mean, my wife it was in her early 40s and, you know – was doing fine for being in her early forties, but the doctor was like, let's get it rolling here, you know, but I, um, have been taking artificial testosterone since 2009 and that cuts off your testosterone, your sperm production. So I had to take a different, this is like in the weeds, but like I had to take a different drug to like cut that back on. And I only had one testicle to do it with. And it's just like a, a lot of me and Lance Armstrong arrived the same unicycle forever, you know? And, um, and, uh, I, so 
it takes a while for that medicine to work. And then it like took longer and I ended up having to have an extremely painful surgery. But, um, this motherfucker, if he comes home talking shit after curfew, boy, do I have some debt for him. <laughs> Pete, I'm down, I'm down to five tenths of a pair. Or I'm down to four tenths of a pair, you know, like, Oh wow. Yeah. They had to cut some off to get him. So, Anyway, so I was doing all that stuff. And so we would like spend a month in Virginia and I'm like spoon feeding my father fighting with the medical system to get my dad to care. He was entitled to and like my sister and and my wife and I were like trying to we're catching them in lies to do that. And then being I had to be his bathroom orderly and like physically put him in a full Nelson and like puppet walk him to the bathroom, get him down there, clean him up get him back he's having choking fits and coughing fits because his lungs are giving out and it causes your body to create more phlegm so we had to do all of that while fighting the healthcare system while doing what it took to have my son and my show is like about all that stuff and it's a comedy don't worry and um i mean it's how i hope it's a comedy um but uh that's what the show's about did I answer that question enough for you? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, I mean, like, I don't know if this is like a trite or or a cliche question. Like, I mean, I, I, while all this is going on, like, how long does it take you to kind of like decide or realize like there's there's a show in here or I want to talk about this? I need to get this out. Like, like when does the the how far away do you have to get from the experience to be able to get some perspective? Or are you thinking about it while it's happening? What's that like? Well, I think it's like. Yeah, I mean, that's a look, that's a reasonable question to ant ask. And like, if it is a cliche question, it's a cliche question, because it's one everybody wants to know the answer to, you know, mm -hmm. so don't don't worry about that. I think and I think for every person in every situation, it's different. And for me, like, so while my dad was sick, I wasn't fucking trying to do a bunch of like park shows or rooftop shows or whatever, because I'm like, like, he's his lungs are so susceptible to like anything anyway that if i brought any kind of covid home and then like i had to be there because my mom's in her 70s and she's a tiny person you know so she couldn't lift my dad and so i was just like super isolating and and i was like man i'm not trying to go just be in a park catch covid to be in a park you know so mm -hmm. doing jokes to nobody so um I just kind of took note. I kept a journal, you know, five days a week. I'd sit down and write at least 30 minutes a day. And I kind of, one, one thing I do, and this, I kind of teach this is like the stories that you catch yourself telling over and over again, you're like little bits, you know? And if, for those of you out there that are like not comedians, like even just like, if you go to a dinner party with your wife or your husband or your, you know, your partner or whatever's going on with you, you know, you have your little stories that you tell and it's like, oh, oh, Pete, tell them about that time your dad did whatever Thanksgiving. You're like, oh, here we go. You know, and you, you know that the, the you, you little stories that you know. Oh, yeah, to, you got you, you got the, the bits ready to rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you deploy them. You're at a wedding together and you got your little wedding stories or whatever. Those are stories that mean something to you and they're like trying to come out. They're important to you. And your mind is like or your heart is just keeping them in the rock tumbler, you know keeping them in rotation. So I just started really taking note of like what's in rotation that I keep coming back to 
and I talk on the phone like a lot and I talked on the phone. I was so lucky to have at least friends who were, they couldn't physically be there, but really ready to just listen to me whenever. And I started paying attention to like, okay, if I talk to Jay Welch today and my friend Noye tomorrow and like two other comics you and I know on Friday, what's the story I told every time, you know? And so I sort of kept that down, mm-hmm. you know? And then now it's look, it's, this is going to be a very loose show. It's sloppy. And it's like, I'm not, I, I feel I can't present it as some like finished thing. I'm workshopping it because I just got to like get it. I got to pop this blackhead on my heart and see what's in there. And then, and then make some sense out of it, you know? And, but do you find that there's like almost like a market for that now? Like I think a lot of like comedy fans and storytelling fans and just like fans of art in general, like they want to see a lot of them want to see the work in progress. They kind of want to see what things look like when it's fresh, sometimes just for that experience, but also to compare it to what the finished product they eventually see looks like. Do you, do you feel that that's like something that, that like people are, hungry for occasionally i mean sure you know listen if you're like any anybody who's got a fan base which i wouldn't say that i do like i know most of my fan base personally let's be honest but there's always the people who want to hear the demos and the b-sides and they're like Mm -hmm. you know that there's always those people and i mean if it was a band you know you, you didn't have a new album but you just put out the demos in between albums there's always going to be people that want to hear that stuff i mean for me, I'm like, I mean, I think in New York, there's an audience for like seeing people work it out. Cause it's one of the special things about being here. You know, I, I went to QED for 10 bucks and saw Gary Goldman do an hour and a half, 45 minutes of which I'm sure is going to be in his next hour. And he just doesn't know which 45 minutes yet, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, it was really cool to see. And like, I'm a, such a huge Gary Goldman fan. Like I'm always going to want to do that. And, um, yeah, sure. So like, yeah, there's going to be an audience for that. And I think that also people are, I'm going to answer the question I thought you were going to ask, but you didn't ask, which is, uh, when I think that as comedy, comedy's become this whole other thing since the pandemic. And a lot of it has been like, comedy is just like shit that comes out of your phone. You know, like Mm -hmm. people just, TikTok is just a comedy faucet and it's like, Oh, look, jokes, Schultz, you know, uh, you know, crowd work, crowd work, famous people's clips, dancing girl, uh, more jokes, you know, and it's just like this thing you just do while you're taking a shit now. And I'm not, I didn't get into this to get on a content treadmill, you know, Mm -hmm. I burned out hard at Time Warner Cable. And part of it was being on that content treadmill. Where like content is such a gross word. It makes it sound like this like I don't know, I'd imagine like in some factory they like open the the the, the, the circular valve and just like this big yeah. borp comes out. It's like the twenty first century version of the widget, basically. It's just yeah. like this kind of interchangeable, faceless, meaningless just kind of phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like um I think of this Steve Martin bit from like I used to when I was a kid. I used to listen to Steve Martin records all the time, and he says like you know you know at McDonald's it's like they have this one crank where like burger, fries, here's your change, <laughs> you know, and I just, I'm just not interested in that. And I think that though that a lot of people are it's like giving like in this so you got people that are going full TikTok right, 
Instagram, TikTok, whatever. Mm-hmm. You got other people who are going like a, you know, Chappelle, Hannah Gadsby, um, you know, who else? Uh, oh, that guy that's in all that trouble. Goldman? Like, uh, Goldman, Hassan oh, Minaj. Russell Brand? No, no, no. Hassan yeah, Minaj. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Different like, kind of trouble. Less serious. Yeah, 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 less serious trouble. And and it's like, okay, creating a bigger, more satisfying chunk, like a real meal you got to digest. And I mm-hmm. kind of feel like maybe that moment is rising to meet the skills I've been developing this whole time. You know, because like, I don't yeah. think I'm going to get booked at New York Comedy Club to t- to do 12 minutes about the time I worked as a kangaroo shooter in the Outback. Thank you and good night. You know, I would love to. But realistically speaking, you have to be Mike Birbiglia first, you know? Yeah. So, so, you know, all that shit about, oh, you're more of a storyteller or you're, you're this is stand-up, you're more of a storyteller. That shit goes away once you've got an audience, you know? Because I've heard, I've been doing mm-hmm. this long enough, and it's like, oh, you're really more of a storyteller, so we can't have you on. And then for a couple of years, it was like, mm, no, but we're not taking straight white guys. Or like whatever the fuck people were saying instead of just saying no. It was mm-hmm. always a yes the whole time. You know, it could have been a yes because Bill Burr or Mike Birbiglia could have done it. So it's like, well, if Bill Burr drops in and you put him up, it's you don't have a problem with straight white guys. And mm-hmm. if um, Mike Birbiglia shows up and you put him up and you don't have a problem with storytellers. So really what you're saying to me is, no, you're not there yet. I do wish people would say it directly, but once I stopped looking at those things at face value and started realizing that, it's when I started making a little peace with hearing shit that, that annoying and just focusing on growing my own work, you know? Yeah, a fan base solves pretty much so, every solves problem all of it. imaginable. Yeah, look, if I, had a mid, if I had a million TikTok followers, I really don't think we'd be even having a conversation. Like, dude, they would be killing right. themselves just to get a... a See, I can't do it, not, not, not today. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, they, they were just breaking their necks to purchase a velvet rope for me. So I'm not worried about it, you know? I'm just going to do what I'm Nice. Doing. Uh, yeah. One last thing I wanted to, to check yeah. on you with. How old is your son now? He is 13 months old. And I thought that all that, like, all new right. parent, 13 months, 16 months stuff was bullshit. But it turns out when they change week by week, it does matter. You know, but, like, yeah, he turned mm-hmm. one on August 13th. And so... Awesome. And how, yeah. how is like having a, a kid, especially a newborn, like change the actual like logistics of doing stand up and storytelling in terms of booking stuff, going out to stuff, reaching out to people, scheduling things like what, what has the impact been over the past year? It makes me a lot more picky about what spots I accept, what ones I do. I don't have a lot of patience for doing a number of low value spots where I know only four people are going to be there or it's going to likely get canceled for low attendance or whatever um in some ways in other ways it's like in some ways i have less patience for that because look look uh his name's fred freddie goes to bed between seven and eight it's like dinner time bedtime and this is a really special time you know and so if i'm gonna miss that it needs to be worth it and it can be worth it because i need a break and it can be worth it because um I'm working on stuff and I want my face to have the muscle memory of saying it. And I actually don't care if only four people show up. It could be worth it because it would be an awesome time or whatever. But the metric is always where is it in the proximity of like 
giving my son his dinner and reading him a story and saying goodnight. Like what, like that's the, that's the kind of the planet that this decision always orbits around. And yeah, I mean, like my wife is totally cool with me going out and doing shows has no issue with it. I mean, if I was out every single night and not getting paid for it at all, like she would have an issue, but we're not there. So uh, I like just decide, you know, it's up to, but, but, but he's always the decision. Cause like, uh, you know, my, my dad was in the CIA when I was growing up. And although I don't remember him not being around, I remember him as very present and very like loving and there. One of the last things he said to me was he said he felt like he didn't spend enough time with me when I was a kid. And, um, you know, I was reassuring him and being like, dad, I don't remember it that way. Like I, I really only think of like the good stuff and whatever, but he's like, yeah, but I know, you know, and, and he said that, like, he said that to me in, I'm going to say April of 2021 passed away in June. And my son was born in August of 2022. So like, it's very present on my mind. Like that just, the more you can be around the better. Mm -hmm. So you're leaving that imprint of like, you know, this guy's here a lot. Yeah, he's here. And I mean, I'm here all day. I'm here all fucking day. Um, I'm here, like, you know, my my mother-in-law, God bless her, comes down three days a week from the Upper West Side and watches him so that I can do stuff. But it's not, like, I don't have the brain time of, like, I'm in an office, let me focus. I still have to, like, make his lunch or, you know, make lunch for her or, you know, yeah, I, I, there's a lot of interruption going on. If he bangs on my door, it's like, how do you tell your cute infant son, no, you can't come crawling in here, you know? I know. I watched a Toni Morrison documentary, uh-huh. and they were uh, talking to Fran Lebowitz, and Fran was like, she wrote those books with two young boys in the house, and uh-huh. she left the door open so they, they wouldn't feel like they were being excluded. How did she get any work done? Like, just yeah. the incredulousness of having small children around and still being this prolific artist is impossible for her to conceive yeah yeah well the thing is is like yeah it makes it harder but i'm also like and i don't want to sound like a like you know the drill sergeant from full metal jacket here but it's also like if you want to do it you'll find a way to do it maybe i slowed down okay but like maybe i was spending all that time getting frustrated at not getting booked because i was trying to be something i'm not you know like Mm -hmm. One of my favorite comics of all time is Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. And I don't know if you've read it, but um, have you? Not the comic book, no. I used, I used to watch the cartoon when it was on TV. Okay, Miles different. Alan Moore also wrote like Batman the Killing Joke and uh, V for Vendetta. And like, anyway, you got it, Pete. If, like, this is my tip to you. If you're looking for something to read that's like not taxing but is going to blow your mind, Alan Moore's run on the Swamp Thing from the 1980s. So, because right. for the longest time, the Swamp Thing was like this shambling muck creature who thought he was the scientist Alec Holland that was transformed into a swamp creature who was trying to change back. And he gradually learns that he's he was never a human being. He is a plant creature that thought it was a human. And he the source of his power, like his powers and his abilities and his understanding of like the world and the cosmos and everything expand exponentially once he stops trying to be the man he thought he was and embraces that he is this whole other thing. So maybe it's time for me to stop trying to be a scientist that blew up and just embrace my like swamp thingness and realize that what I've been doing, nobody has been able to um, classify. And 
Amy at New York Comedy Club, you know, who's no longer there, and she's a friend of mine, and, and I'd love to break her balls about this. And if she hears this, she knows that I mean this very lovingly. Told me that when I came to her, I presented a curious value proposition because <laughs> she's like, you got all this stage time and all this performing experience, but it's not in clubs. So I know you know what you're doing, but club audiences may need something else. Which, by the way, what a much more productive, fucking helpful thing to say than, well, you're really more of a storyteller. Like, that gives yeah, me something I can use. Yeah, gives me something I can use. Okay, now I have choices to make and directions to choose to grow in or not. But, yeah, I can use that. That it's, She's so helpful that way. And so I'm maybe with this show what I'm trying to do, and it's just a longer, slower thing. But maybe it's a way to just be the me I've always wanted to be and not try to, like, fit into what the moth wants or fit into what this club wants or that club wants or, like, be sad that I didn't get just for laughs again, even though nobody asked me to audition. Like, why is it that every time the, the, the people who get JFL come out, I get bummed out? I'm like, well, you didn't audition. So I think that's at least a prerequisite. And I'm not going to get new faces at JFL because my face is no longer new. I'm 47, you know? So like, yeah. anyway, I mean, it's just like, stop trying to stop getting hung up on the woulda, coulda, shouldas. And maybe I got something else, you know, does this, is this helpful to you? Yeah, like, make I your own new faces. Yeah. 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 Make my, no, yeah, this... how about, how about, yeah. How about my, I'm going to start a show called my faces and it's just going to be me and the people I like, <laughs> you know, Je the Jeff Zimmerman's faces of comedy comedy festival. Yeah. yeah just for love. Uh, yeah. All right, I think that's a good, a good spot to, to, close on um jeff thanks so much for dialing in uh tell us about the show it's qed astoria this sunday september 24th yes yep yep okay yep. it's called caregiver caregiver and if you go to uh, if you go to like my instagram uh you know at jeff.simmerman or my website jeff I should update my website. Yeah, just go to QED's website. Just do that. Yeah, yeah and we'll have that. we'll have the links in the the podcast episode and the YouTube video and all that stuff. So yeah, oh. um, follow Jeff. And so if you miss this performance, you can catch up on future iterations and all that stuff. So yeah, um, yeah, Jeff, thanks so much. Thanks, buddy. Really Good luck. It. Yeah, or anything else you wanted to? Sound like you were gonna you were gonna say something. I'm always about to say something. Yeah, so don't <laughs> worry about it. Oh, I'm, oh, oh, oh. Right. I'm directing Carrie Cottett's show in the New York Comedy Festival, too. Um, and I'm very excited about that. It's going to be great. And uh, awesome. I'm working with her on writing it. So that's November 4th. You know, check that out, too, if you're a super fan. So. All right, Jeff. Well, good luck with all that. Thanks for, right. for calling in. And, uh, yeah, like and subscribe to the YouTube podcast, all that stuff for those Smash listening that at like home. Button. And, yep. uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. All right, you guys have a great day. Jeff, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, take care, buddy.